Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood. We're a podcast dedicated to celebrating what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain, and in particular, to remember the central role that television played in our and our family's lives. I've said this before, but I think it's well worth repeating. The 1970s has got a bad press and it's written off by many as the decade that taste forgot. And I do admit that when I look at some of the family photos of us all together in beige and orange, I can see why some people might think that. We hear endlessly about how brilliant it was in the 1960s, and how difficult and tragic it is to be a millennial in today's world. But I don't think we hear enough about the 1970s, and what our country was like then. For adults like my parents, in the 1970s there were lots of challenges, not least economic ones, given that the UK was just about bankrupt and facing up to the decline of the industrial age in which we'd led the world. But for people of my age, the 1970s was when we grew up, and, like many, my childhood was a happy time of playing with friends, learning what it was like to be in the world, and doing lots of normal things like going to school, and of course, watching TV. Now, I'm going to stop repeating myself in a moment, but I can't overestimate how important TV was to children, families, and our society in general at that time. In a way, TV bound us together in difficult times, and I see parallels between the wartime role of the radio, or wireless as my father called it for all of his life, the families sitting around watching Morecambe and Wise together in the 1970s were not unlike those gathered around the wireless listening to Itmar in the darkest days of the war. Perhaps I am overstating it, but TV was at the heart of our culture, for good and for bad, in the 1970s, and it provided the staple conversation of the classroom and the workplace in a way which I don't think it ever has done since. Okay. That's my rant over. And let's get back to my 70s TV childhood. As always, thank you for your comments, tweets and emails. I do feel honoured that my reminiscences are helping listeners to remember their childhoods and I really appreciate all of your feedback. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can do so on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet at 70s TV Childhood, or you can email me directly, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. I've had lots of comments following our recent episode, FAB Virgil, Thunderbirds Are Go, so thank you for all of those. Now, several of you made a very important point, which I neglected to mention in the episode, which dealt with the puppet-based shows produced by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. 
Just as I was watching Fireball XL5, Stingray, Captain Scarlet, Thunderbirds et al. in the 1970s, successive following generations of children were captivated by the Andersons' creations in the 1980s and the 1990s. A whole new audience enjoyed Thunderbirds when it was rerun by the BBC, and thanks to Linda, Paul, and several others who wrote in to remind me. Indeed, 1992's most sought-after Christmas gift was Tracy Island, which proved very hard to get, so it led to Anthea Turner showing us all how to make one from toilet rolls and sticky-back plastic on Blue Peter. I think what it does do, it shows the quality of the programmes in that they lasted and also spoke to children over a period of more than 30 years. As I said in the last episode, the quality of the storylines in Thunderbirds particularly and the underlying theme of good triumphing against the odds is a universally popular story. Thanks as well for all the comments on Captain Scarlet. It seems I wasn't the only one who found some of the plot lines a little dark. Paul remembers an episode where almost all the characters were killed, but in the end it turned out to be a dream. So that was okay then. And also thanks for all of you who filled in the names of the missing angels. Apparently there were five in total, although I I can only ever recall three. And they were quite a cosmopolitan bunch, with Americans, Symphony and Melody Angel, the British Angel Rhapsody, the sophisticated French Angel Destiny, and the Chinese angel, Harmony. So thanks for all of those. I think it's a tribute to the Andersons that, even now, you all have so many memories of their work and feel so strongly about them. The final comments I'll mention from this week's correspondence were from some of you who said that I mistakenly ignored Jerry Anderson's live-action shows. Well, that was a deliberate decision, as I wanted to look at them in a separate episode, as they do deserve attention on their own. So that's where we're going to start on this episode. As we mentioned last time, Jerry Anderson's ambition was to be a big live-action filmmaker, and the puppets had been a way of demonstrating his ability to potential investors and studios. In a way, though, he became a victim of his own success – as the studios seemed to want more and more puppet shows. However, he did get a chance to produce a big-budget live-action series in 1969, and, almost inevitably, the subject was space. Now, I've mentioned before that space was an incredibly popular subject in the 60s and 70s. The space race between the US and the USSR was unfolding around us, with bigger and bolder attempts by the superpowers to outdo each other, culminating in the moon landing on July the 20th, 1969. I was only two at the time, so I had no idea what was going on. But by the time I got to nursery school and then primary school, all little children, well, particularly boys, were gripped by space and the thought of space travel. I remember walking home from school in my first year, and it was dark, so it must have been December 1972, And looking up at the moon to see whether I could see any signs of the astronauts in their spacecraft, which were on the surface at that very moment. We didn't know anything about the politics of the Cold War, which was driving the huge efforts to get people into space. All we saw was men walking on the moon on the TV. And we could dream that we would be able to do that one day. 
I remember primary school textbooks were full of stories about how we would build permanent bases on the moon and that whole communities would live there as a first stage in humankind exploring the stars and that once we'd colonised the moon, then Mars would be next, as it said in my PG Tips card collection, the race into space. For many children like me, it seemed perfectly natural that we would be able to be astronauts in the future. And that became my stock answer to the question often asked by adults, rather irritatingly. And what are you going to be, Oliver, when you grow up? Of course, when I said, an astronaut, adults simply smiled or patted me on the head or said, of course you will be, hmm. which made me even more determined to be a spaceman. Although now I think about it, I was just as determined to become a cowboy before the astronaut idea came along. I hadn't really thought that one through very much either, as I'm not sure there was ever much demand for cowboys in the Warrington area. Anyway, it was against this backdrop that Jerry Anderson produced what was a revolutionary new series. Set in the near future, the seemingly distant 1980, where the Earth was troubled by the possibility of alien invasion. UFO was, in my opinion, brilliant. It first aired in 1970, so clearly I didn't see it first time around. It must have been repeated because I do remember aspects of it very vividly. Basically, the Earth was under attack from a mysterious dying race of aliens who wanted to capture humans to harvest their organs and ultimately to take over the Earth. So far, so good? Right. Earth's response was to join together as Shadow, S-H-A-D-O, which stood for Supreme Headquarters Alien Defence Organisation. However, for some reason which I could never quite understand, this organisation was top secret, as they always seem to be in these programmes, and it was hidden under a film studio, which actually made films as a cover. Now, for some reason, the commander of Shadow, Ed Straker, played by Ed Bishop, who was a regular face on British TV screens during the 70s and 80s as our regular go-to American, was also a film producer as his cover. I remember there were lots of groovy, futuristic fashions, and that Ed Strake himself had a fantastic car, which had doors which opened like the gullwing doors of a DeLorean would later do. He was, as he might put it, one cool cat, and he and his troops bravely tried to defend the Earth from the UFOs which endlessly flowed from the alien planet. There were a couple of other clever touches. The aliens remained fairly mysterious as we hardly ever saw them. Mostly they would land and then booby-trap their UFOs to blow up spectacularly when disturbed. Their most common form of attack, apart from explosions, was through mind control and in several episodes shadow employees and others were taken over by aliens and forced to do all kinds of bad and wicked things, often trying to kill Commander Straker. Oh yes, and there was also a secret shadow base on the moon where a fleet of interceptor vehicles were ready to be scrambled to take on and destroy alien flying saucers en route to the Earth. 
which in turn reminds me, I had a dinky shadow interceptor, which I loved playing with, particularly as it fired a rather hard plastic missile with some force, and I happily fired at all sorts of things and people over the years. However, it was also the wrong colour, just like my Thunderbird 2 mentioned in the previous episode. Perhaps Dinky had a thing about Jerry Anderson-related toys. The interceptions in the show were clearly white, but mine was green. Can somebody please tell me why? I'm sure that doesn't sound that exciting to some of you, but I found it gripping. As well as the chic and smooth Ed Straker, most of the other shadow operatives were stylish, but also had human frailties and could make mistakes. This made the show even more credible to me. Well, assuming you took on board the idea of aliens attacking the Earth and being resisted by a secret underground defence force. What also made it very memorable was that the alien flying saucers were very menacing in their appearance, and as they flew through space, they rotated, giving off an eerie, whining sound. That noise scared the hell out of me as a young child. Although for the first time, just listening to it now, I notice there's a similarity between that noise and the theme tune of Joe 90. Well, better late than never for me picking that one up. UFO was syndicated to the US and initially did very well, so much so that a second series was commissioned, this time to be based entirely on the moon and in the moon base. But unfortunately... Audiences dropped off during the programme's 26-part run, to the point where its potential US funders got cold feet. It's a shame that no more episodes were made, but I have heard a rumour that, not for the first time in the last 40 years, a remake is being seriously planned. I'm all for that if it happens. It was a bit of a setback for Jerry Anderson, but undaunted, he took the idea of a lunar-based drama further. And in September 1975, we finally went back to the moon. For kids like me brought up on Captain Scarlet and Thunderbirds, Space 1999 was an amazing show. It was rumoured to have been one of the most expensive TV series ever produced in Britain. And I suppose in, in many ways it was the British answer to Star Trek. For those of you who may not remember the show, it was set on the moon in the far off future year of 1999. Remember what I was saying earlier about my primary school textbooks and living on the moon? Hmm. There we are, and followed the adventures of the inhabitants of Moonbase Alpha, which, during the first episode, was blown out of the Earth's orbit following an explosion on a nuclear waste dump. The moon was catapulted far away from Earth, so every week 
a new crisis challenged the Alphans to demonstrate basically why Earth people were always right and why aliens were almost always wrong. The Alphans were led by Commander John Koenig, played by the great Martin Landau, who was a thoroughly decent, upstanding, all-American type, who was dedicated to looking after his crew as they took on challenges presented by unknown galaxies and new phenomena. The whole thing seemed very futuristic to me as a child, yet entirely logical and credible. Of course, why couldn't the moon be blown up and sent hurtling into space? The crew of Moon Base Alpha also looked very smart, a common theme with Jerry Anderson shows. In a bid for sexual equality, the miniskirts of Captain Scar's UFO had disappeared, and the Alphans all wore beige unisex safari suits with flared trousers. Very, very 1970s. And of course, the show was filled with the clever gadgetry, which again was the hallmark of Anderson shows. I remember being particularly impressed by the communication devices they had, which were like little telephones they carried around with them in their belts, and they were able to make video calls to their colleagues. Fancy what it would be like having one of those with you all the time. The other great machines of the show were the Eagles, a fleet of spacecraft which were used to ferry freight and passengers across the lunar landscape and onto alien planets. Now, I was, like most kids, able to willingly suspend my disbelief with most aspects of Space 1999, but the one thing I couldn't understand was how the fleet of eagles kept going. In most episodes, at least one eagle crashed or got destroyed somehow, but they kept on coming. Perhaps there was a huge supply of spare eagles buried somewhere in the moon, on the moon, and, and there was an everlasting supply of parts to keep them going. But they must have got through dozens during the two series of the show. Oh, and it was one of those eagles crashing into the nuclear waste dump that caused the explosion that sent them off into space in the first place. If any of you have an answer as to how the eagles just kept on going, let me know. Many of the plots of Space 1999 were, frankly, bonkers. I think my favourite was a two-part special, which was later released as a standalone film, I think, The Bringers of Wonder, where a rescue party lands on the moon, made up of lots of friends and family of the Moonbase Alpha crew. They want the Alphans to accompany them back to Earth. All seems well, apart from Commander Koenig having had some kind of breakdown or illness, I can't remember quite what. And when he emerges from it, he doesn't see the rescuers, but instead sees a bunch of satisfyingly hideous telepathic creatures who've brainwashed everyone else. Needless to say, over the course of two episodes, he manages to defeat the evil creatures, but I still remember the storyline and the frankly rather scary monsters, which are absolutely perfect for a nine-year-old boy, as I must have been when I first saw it. Unfortunately for Commander Koenig and his chums, yet again, the US viewing public tired of the show, and it was cancelled after two series and 48 episodes. For many of my generation, it still lives on as one of the great sci-fi shows of the 70s, and the Eagle Transporter remains a treasured toy memory for many. Although not me, as I never persuaded my parents to get me one for Christmas or birthday. But I did have my Thunderbird 2 and my Shadow Interceptor, and that was more than enough Anderson creations to keep me happy.
Although I didn't realise this at the time, Jerry Anderson was also the man behind The Protectors. This was an archetypal 70s show, with Robert Vaughan as a suave American in London, Tony Anholt as a smooth, good-looking one, and he was also in Space 1999, I should add, and Irie Dawn Porter as the English Rose, who seemed to spend most of her time in the bath drinking champagne, from what I remember. To what end, I can't really can't really think. Um, and actually, what they did during the episode has slipped my mind somewhat, other than they were the good guys. But the stylist sets, locations and actors, together with the epic Tony Christie theme tune, are enough for it for, to live on for me. As I said earlier, it is remarkable that the works of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson were enjoyed across so many generations. They continued making shows in the 80s and 90s with the frankly terrifying Terror Hawks and the rather odd Space Precinct as two examples, but I don't think anything ever came near the brilliance of the super marionation exploits of Captain Scarlet, Stingray and Thunderbirds, or the frankly quite cool live-action shows like UFO and Space 1999. I, for one will never forget them and remain eternally thankful to the Andersons for their creation. Were you a fan of UFO or Space 1999? Or were you a bit more of a Star Trek or a Doctor Who type? Both of which are going to feature in future episodes. Let me know at www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet at 70stvchildhood or email me, Oliver, at my 70 Childhood. Com. Well, that's all for this time. So thanks again for listening and hope to see you again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood. <laughs>